Old Testament trivia tells us that King Joash was the youngest king of Israel. What it doesn't tell us is that he would be the last hope for the birth line of David and that he was hunted to see that God's promised heritage would not continue or lead to the birth of our greatest ruler, King Jesus. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. Today we continue our studies in 2 Kings and the life of the prophet Elisha by learning how a young king demonstrates and foretells the life of the Savior to come. Phil, today in the message we hear about the birth of the next king of Israel in Joash. It reminds us of a lot of other stories we've heard about kingly births. Why is this kind of story so popular? Well, Mark, you could just come up with dozens of examples from world literature or from the movies even about the story of the birth of a king and particularly a king who is hidden in obscurity and then rises to greatness. I mean, think of the story of King Arthur. Nobody knows anything about Arthur until he draws the sword Excalibur. Or think of the story in Star Wars where Luke Skywalker actually turns out to be this Jedi warrior. Well, You know, like a lot of the other great stories in the world, it's a story that we first hear in the Bible. And a good example of that is the story of Joash. Well, Phil, how do we respond to people that tell us the Bible is not the originator of these common stories, but just another imitation in a long line of humanity's folklore? Well, Mark, I think it's clear that there are echoes of the great stories of the Bible in literature from the whole world over, including the ancient stories that were passed down by word of mouth. But I think the important thing to say is this. The stories in the Bible are true stories. This is history. And this is a good example in today's passage as we look at the story of King Joash. He's a historical figure. You could confirm that even from other historical records. The important thing about him is he is in the direct line of King David leading to Jesus Christ, who also came from a very obscure background, but turned out to be the king of all kings. Phil, thank you. Let's turn in our Bibles now to 2 Kings chapter 11 and listen to God's Word for us today. We come this morning to what may sound like a familiar story. I wonder if the story does sound familiar. The boy is born to be king, and yet someone else has usurped his throne and his life is in danger. As the boy is still an infant, loyal friends come and rescue him. They rescue the rightful king and they take him into their protective custody. And then when the time is right, they reveal the identity of their king and they defend and fight for his honor. The king takes his royal weapons and ascends to his rightful throne. One reason this story might sound familiar is because it's been repeated many times in world literature. There are many variations of this same story. Many of the legends of King Arthur follow something along this line. Arthur is the son of Uther Pendragon, and he is born rightfully the king, and yet for many years remains in hiding until he takes his sword Excalibur and fights to defend his kingdom. C.S. Lewis tells a couple different versions of this story in his Narnia Chronicles, or even Star Wars with the story of Luke Skywalker, who eventually becomes a Jedi warrior, is a variation on this same theme. But like a lot of the really great stories, the story is first told in the Bible. And the original boy born to be king was 
Joash. He was delivered from death by friends loyal to the monarchy. He was raised in secret. And then when the time was right, his enemies were defeated and Joash became the king of the Jews. This is not simply a quaint story about a boy born to be king. It's not even simply the answer to that old Bible trivia question about the youngest person to be crowned the king of Israel. Now, the stories of the Old Testament kings are intended to teach us about the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The good kings show us who a king is and what he does and how he ought to be served and so forth. And they all point forward to the coming of King Jesus, and especially those kings like Joash who were the sons of David. The story of Joash is no exception. It's the history of a king coming into his kingdom told in six acts. As we remember this story, we want to be thinking along the way of the ways in which this story tells us about King Jesus and about his kingdom. Verses 1 through 3, we have a king preserved. Verses 4 through 11, a king revealed. In verse 12, a king anointed. In verses 13 to 16, a king avenged. In verses 17 to the first part of 18, a king covenanted. And then finally, the king enthroned from 18 to the end of the chapter. First, the life of the king was preserved. No sooner had Joash been born than his life was in mortal danger. Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead. She proceeded to destroy the whole royal family. Now, you have to understand that Athaliah was the Jezebel of Judah, like mother, like daughter. She was the daughter, very likely, of Jezebel herself, and she had the same unquenchable lust for power. When she heard that her son, the king Ahaziah, was dead, she vowed to become the first and only queen of Judah by any means necessary. She even had her own grandsons, her own flesh and blood, systematically executed so that she could take the throne. But that's not the shocking thing. No, the shocking thing is that Athaliah almost destroyed the house and the line of David. Now, remember that God had promised to David an everlasting kingdom. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. That promise first made to David had been repeated just a chapter or two earlier in 2 Kings chapter 8 when Jehoram became the king of Judah. We read in verse 18 that Jehoram did evil in the eyes of the Lord nevertheless. For the sake of his servant David, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. Yet as we come to the first verse of chapter 11, we have to ask if this promise has now been defeated. For in this first verse, it sounds as if the promises to David have all failed. If Athaliah has indeed destroyed the whole royal family, then David's kingdom cannot endure forever. His line has been extinguished. There will be no son of David to sit upon the throne, no Messiah, no kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we will all live miserably ever after the end. 
Ah, but you see, Athaliah did not quite destroy the whole royal family. No, may God be praised. As we come to verse 2, we discover that the rightful king has been spared. Jehoshaphat took Joash and stole him away from among the royal princes who were about to be murdered. She put him and his nurse in a bedroom to hide him from Athaliah so he was not killed. Long live the king. Jehoshaphat was Athaliah's half-sister, a princess in her own right, and one of the great heroines of the Bible. First she hid her nephew Joash in the room actually in the palace where they kept the palace bedding. Then with the help of one of the nurses, she eventually smuggled him from the linen closet to the temple where he remained hidden for six years while Athaliah ruled the land. And you see, for this time, David's eternal kingdom depended upon the survival of that little boy. Indeed, the salvation of the whole world was hanging by that slenderest of threads. But that slender thread was the unbreakable cord of the promise of Almighty God. And in keeping with God's eternal plan, this brave, resourceful woman saved the house of David and preserved the life of the king. Now the boy king was raised in secret, his royal identity un recognized, and yet there was one man who knew who Joash was. It was Jehoiada, the priest, who was God's man and the king's man, loyal to the death. Eventually the time came for the king's identity to be revealed, and in the seventh year Jehoiada sent for the commanders and the guards and had them brought to him at the temple. Well, the first thing Jehoiada needed to do was to make sure that these men were loyal to the house of David. So he made them swear an oath of allegiance to God and to king. Then, as we read in verse 4, he showed them the king's son, and the king was revealed. Now, there was a special reason why Jehoiada knew who the king was and why he was able to vouch for his royal identity. We don't read it here in Second Kings, but it is mentioned in the book of Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 22, where we read that Jehoshaphat hid the child from Athaliah, or rather Jehoshaphat, the wife of the priest Jehoiada, hid the child from Athaliah. So he remained hidden with them at the temple of God for six years. You see, Jehoiada was Jehoshaphat's husband. And together, this godly couple served as foster parents for Joash. When the time came, Jehoiada was able to vouch for that boy which he had raised as his own son. Once the king was revealed in this way, Jehoiada gave the soldiers his plan for anointing him as king of Judah. He said, this is what you are to do. You who are in three companies that are going on duty on the Sabbath and you who are in the other two companies that normally go off Sabbath duty are all to guard the temple for the king. Station yourselves around the king. Anyone who approaches your ranks must be put to death and stay close to the king wherever he goes. You can see that Jehoiada was a shrewd man. He was very careful not to arouse any suspicion. During the week, there were two companies of soldiers at 
the palace and then one company of soldiers at the temple. On the Sabbath, the situation was reversed. They had the changing of the guard on the Sabbath, and then two bodyguards went to the temple and one remained at the palace. Jehoiada's plan was that while all of these maneuvers were going on, that this would be the perfect time to anoint Joash as king. He had the perfect cover. He waited until the troops were finished with their maneuvers and everything went according to plan. The time of the changing of the royal bodyguard, two companies of soldiers reported to Jehoiada, and instead of going home, the off-duty soldiers stayed at the temple to help cordon off a ribbon of security around the king. Jehoiada gave the soldiers those special weapons which were stored at the temple, which were the proof of royal identity. They had belonged to David, were symbols of his kingly authority. They showed that this was not some quest for power or some unwarranted coup, but this was a matter of the rightful king being restored to his throne. Once The temple was secure. Joash was anointed. He was brought out into public and openly acknowledged to be the king of the Jews. Jehoiada brought out the king's son, and he put the crown on him. He presented him with a copy of the covenant and proclaimed him king. And They anointed him, and the people clapped their hands and shouted, Long live the king! Now, there were two things very significant about this anointing. One is this document which Joash was given, not actually a copy of the covenant, for the word covenant does not appear in this verse in the Hebrew. Instead, it is called a testimony, and most likely it was a copy of God's instructions for kings, which are listed in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17. According to God's law, the king was not only to read these instructions, he was to recopy them for himself and to obey them and He was to write for himself this scroll of a copy of the law taken from the priest, and he was to read it all the days of his life so that he would learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of his law. And, of course, that is what we find here in 2 Kings chapter 11, that the priest hands to the king a copy of God's testimony. The other significant thing about this coronation is the popular support which Joash received. Once he was anointed as kings, his loyal subjects greeted him with loud applause, with fanfares of trumpet, with joyful shouts of acclamation. Long live the king, they shouted. Long live the king. In fact, they made... So much noise that they could be heard down at the palace. And there, by one woman in particular, the unholy queen, Athaliah, well, once she heard all the ruckus, she went up to the temple to see what all the fuss was about, and there she received, undoubtedly, the shock of her life. She looked, verse 14, and there was the king standing by the pillar as the custom was. The officers and the trumpeters were beside the king, and all the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets. Well, the sight of this newly crowned king, surrounded by soldiers and supported by the general feeling of the public, was more than she could bear. She tore her robes 
And she cried out, treason, treason. But of course, it was nothing of the kind. Anointing Joash as the rightful king was patriotism to God and to his kingdom. And the real traitor was Athaliah, who set herself over against God and his anointed king. Therefore, Joash needed to be avenged by her death. When he saw her, Jehoiada the priest ordered, bring her out between the ranks and put to the sword anyone who follows her. The soldiers carried out this command. They carried her outside the precincts of the temple because even in this act of vengeance, Jehoiada was a righteous man. He was careful not to dishonor the Lord by the shedding of blood on holy ground. But the priest had said she must not be put to death in the temple of the Lord, and so they seized her as she reached the place where the horses enter the palace grounds, and there she was put to death. Well, once the king had been avenged by the death of Athaliah, he was covenanted. And you see, we'll come back to this at the end, but we need to be thinking all along of the ways in which this reminds us and teaches us about the coming of King Jesus. Now, when I mean covenanted, I mean that he was bound to God and to his holy people by a holy covenant. Jehoiada then made a covenant, this is verse 17, between the Lord and the king and people so that they would be the Lord's people. They also made a covenant between the king and the people. You see, it was a three-way covenant. There were three parties to it, God, the king, and the people, and each party to this covenant had promises to keep to each of the other parties. For his part, God promised to establish the king's throne forever. He also promised the people the greatest of all his blessings, that they would be his people. The people, in turn, promised to serve the Lord and to remain loyal to his anointed king. As for the king, he promised to follow the Lord with all his heart and to regard his loyal subjects as his brothers. In this way, God and the king and the people were bound to one another by a solemn covenant. You may remember that the Jews had renewed their covenant before under Moses and under Joshua and under Samuel, and now they were doing it under Jehoiada. They were swearing allegiance to their God and to their king. The reason they needed to renew their covenant is because they had been failing to keep it. It was all because of their sins. Under Athaliah, they had turned away from God to worship Baal. Now they needed to turn back to God. The only way to do that, and listen to this because this is for our practical application, the only way to turn back to God is to confess your sins and to recommit your life to God all over again. Of course, the kind of commitment which God demands is total commitment. His covenant is exclusive. He demands absolute allegiance. He will not share his affections with any other god. That is why once the people had renewed their covenant with God, they went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. They smashed the altars and idols to pieces and killed the priest of Baal in front of the altars. Now, this is not the same 
temple which Jehu destroyed in 2 Kings chapter 10, as we studied last week. That was the temple which Ahab had built up in the north in the kingdom of Israel. This was another temple to Baal, built in Judah, in the south, among God's own people. And very likely, as we know from other historical records built by Athaliah herself. And the most important thing to know about this temple of Baal is that it was destroyed. For when God rules through his covenanted king, order is restored and worship is reformed. And then finally, the king was enthroned. There was a great royal procession from the temple down to the palace, all of the guards and all of the priests and all of the people following in the train of Joash. Once they arrived at the palace, Joash ascended up to that throne which was his by rights, and he took his place on the royal throne, and all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet, that is to say, peaceful and at rest, because Athaliah had been slain with the sword at the palace, and Joash was seven years old when he began to reign. Thus the boy king was preserved in infancy and revealed by the priest and anointed in the temple and avenged against his enemies and covenanted to his people and enthroned over Judah. And there was joy and peace for God's people. That is the history of Joash. But you see, of course, that it is also the history of Jesus Christ, whose kingship is explained in these histories of the Old Testament kings, both by good example and by bad counterexample. The king that God has always had in mind for his people is his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So consider all the parallels between Joash and Jesus. Jesus Christ is the king preserved. Like Joash, he was born to be the king of the Jews, and yet from the very time of his birth, his life was in danger. You remember how it was. King Herod was jealous, and by any means necessary, he wanted to eliminate this Jesus, and so he killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem. The king's life was preserved. His brave parents took him down to Egypt and kept him in hiding until it was safe for him to return. And, of course, Jesus eventually became the king revealed. His royal identity remained a secret until it was time for him to come into his kingdom. And then he came, preaching the kingdom of God. And the more he taught and the more miracles he performed, the more people understood that he was not merely a carpenter from Nazareth, but that he was a king come down from heaven. Eventually, they worshipped him as their king. They shouted, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus Christ is the king anointed. His anointing took place at the beginning of his public ministry. John the Baptist took Jesus down into the Jordan River and baptized him with water. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. 
And in this way, Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit to be the Savior of the world. As he said himself, not long afterwards, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. Of course, Jesus is also the king avenged. By the grace of God, the great and terrible day of his vengeance has been delayed. But it will surely come. And on that dread day, everyone who stands against God and against his anointed king will be thrown down. But the scripture says, he, that is Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Jesus Christ is the King covenanted. He is bound both to his Father and to us by solemn promises of love. God the Father promised to give his Son an eternal throne and a kingdom of people for himself. And for his part, God the Son promised perfect obedience to the law of God. He even promised to suffer all of the penalties that we deserve for breaking that law. Jesus met all of the demands of that covenant of grace, kept covenant with God so that we could be his people. But here, but here is the great mystery. That covenant was sealed with Christ's own blood. So that at the Last Supper, he took the cup and invited his disciples to drink. And he said, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Of course, Jesus was speaking about the cross, where he suffered the whole judgment of God against our sin. You see, the covenanted king was the king crucified. But Jesus did not remain on that cross, nor did he remain in the dust of death, but he was raised again on the third day, and he ascended into heaven, where he sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, for Jesus Christ is the King enthroned. After, this is Hebrews chapter 1, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, and there he sits on that throne of authority and rule and dominion over heaven and earth. You see, the King of Kings has come into his kingdom. God has exalted him to the highest place. There he will remain and there he will rule for all eternity. What then remains, we might ask, what then remains for us to do or to say? Well, you have to realize that from beginning to end, this coming into the kingdom of the rightful king has all been the work of God from beginning to end. God was the one who preserved the life of his chosen king, who revealed him, who anointed him, who avenged him, and who covenanted with him, and finally who enthroned him. All that is left for us to do is to serve the king as his loyal subjects. We're called to be brave, like Jehoshaphat, be brave in our testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to be faithful like Jehoiada, to remain faithful to the very end, 
In this way, we are called to work to establish God's kingdom by proclaiming Christ to be the king. But most of all, we are called to worship like these people of Israel, to gather around the king's throne and to sing, to play trumpets and to rejoice, and to give loud shouts of acclamation saying, long live the king, long live the king. Of course, the great and wonderful thing about Jesus Christ is that he will remain the king forever and ever. Every other king who has ever ruled on this earth has passed away or will pass away. It's true of all the kings of Babylon and all the emperors of China and all the kingdoms of Africa, all the kings and queens of Europe. One day it will be true of our own dominion here in these United States of America. All the kingdoms of the world will pass away. But Christ, the King, will remain enthroned forever and forever. We read in Scripture that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise that you have done all of these things for your own Son and our kingly Savior, Jesus Christ. We come now to worship you as your loyal subject saved by his grace. We pray now that you would prepare our hearts to feast around your kingly table. Amen. You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word.